You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Well, with you, but not with you. Yeah. Uh, you know, now we have an office and a place to record these things, but uh, I'm working on Richmond for most of February. <laughs> so yeah. here I am. Abandoning me to run this office by myself. I could sit in the old podcast studio too, if I wanted, but instead I decided to choose the view because I was here yesterday and I saw a, uh, about a four-year-old child stomping in a puddle out front and it gave me great joy. And then I saw this tiny little bunny that we've got in our flower bed here, and that gave me more joy. So I've decided to sit in the uh, in the office at the front that's got the view, and uh, and 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 join you on the podcast. Okay, well, I'm glad you don't want to join me in person. No, it's not that. I, I enjoy also doing it, doing uh, the podcast in person as well. But uh, this is, uh, I mean, I'm, I always look for an opportunity for a different experience. Yes. And, uh, I try to take joy in uh, in the circumstances that are before me. You've got that joy, 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 joy down in your heart. I do. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a lot to talk about this week. And of course, as usual, we're also going to be joined by Eric McGracken for a McGracken moment partway through the podcast. So keep your ears peeled for that. I don't Let's- think you have to keep your ears peeled for it. No, no. <laughs> he's he's, he's, he's pretty aggressive and that's a hell of an intro he's got there yeah anyway so let's get moving all right so the first thing i wanted to talk about was actually like a pretty sad story uh coming out of laval quebec this week a uh, transit bus driver who is now facing first degree murder charges as a result of a bus accident in which uh he drove the bus into the date park there don't park there sorry don't, don't park, park there in one of our spots <laughs> and is walking to traffic car court so that's um, also the parking monitor when i'm here also don't park anywhere don't park sorry i just jumped up to the window to knock on the window because somebody was parking in one of our reserve spots it drives me crazy oh um, to walk to traffic court um it bring you joy yeah that didn't bring me joy the um so where we were, were we? We're in Laval, Quebec, and sadly, two children dead. Yes. Yes. And first degree murder charges. And I thought we could break down a little bit because when I first heard the story, um, which was, I think, Wednesday morning while I was driving into work or Tuesday morning, you know, bus driver crashes into daycare. I thought, oh, my God, a tragic accident. Um, you know, they must have like hit the gas instead of the brakes or a malfunction or, or a swerve to avoid a hazard in the roadway, that wouldn't warrant a first-degree murder charge. No. When they talked about um, people having to restrain the driver, mm-hmm. um, that's when you realize that it looked like something more was up. And, you know, for the longest time, we never, nobody ever had to worry about their kids in a daycare. And then there was daycare shootings in the States. And now we have a, a daycare, um, you know, a, a, 
murder charge um, with a bus. It's a it's a very disturbing development. But of course, we've seen vehicles used as as weapons in the last few years. Uh, you know, vans driving onto sidewalks and killing a family, and mm-hmm. now somebody driving into a daycare where you've got you know absolutely innocent people. <laughs> you know, yeah. children, small children being killed. I mean, I, I heard on the radio that there was like four-year-olds trapped under the bus who survived. Um, how do you explain that? You know, how do you deal with your child after that? How do you explain that to your child? Uh, you know, the kid's going to look for some sort of understanding and justification or some sort of explanation of it. Yeah. At the same time, we're dealing with that, you know, and, and it's it's so tragic and heartbreaking, and I'm, I'm, I'm broken up by it uh, as a parent. It's it's it may be harder for you if you are a parent, um, but you know there's twenty thousand people so far, uh, I think, confirmed dead in Turkey and Syria from the earthquake, mm-hmm. and uh, lots of of children, right? Well, what I really wanted to talk about in relation to this was why it would be specifically a first degree murder charge, because of course, when you have um, a driving accident that leads to a death, you know, you could have dangerous driving causing death on the sort of low end of the spectrum. Uh, you could have criminal negligence causing death on the higher higher end of the spectrum. And then you get into your murder-related offenses, manslaughter, second-degree murder, and first-degree murder, which is the highest end of the spectrum of conduct that you can be charged with related to somebody's death. Yeah. And that's such a, it's, it, it, it puzzles me. Like I understand the evidence that, you know, he had to be restrained at the scene. And I mean, to me, that sounds like a mental health episode, but in order for a first degree. Planned and deliberate issue is the concern. Yeah, I know. And I, I, I've been wondering about that myself. And of course it's interesting that there hasn't been any real discussion in the media that I've heard about it because I don't know how you get to the planned and deliberate. Uh, you know, unless you find that he's got a uh, a, a note or something, uh, you know, like a suicide note or something like that. Um, yeah. You know, just a him driving and then deciding, make even if he's made a decision long before, uh, you know, drives past this spot in his bus all the time and then decides that he's going to drive into this daycare. Like, I don't know how you can gather that. What evidence would support it aside from a note? You know, or him telling somebody journal entries or web postings or something saying that he's going to murder all these children. Or maybe there's like a like a dispute with an ex where to get back at her, he would harm or attempt to harm. Yeah. A child there or yeah. Or or somehow connected. Maybe she worked there. But Uh, and, you know, bearing in mind, I don't do murder defense cases nor do you um don't want to um but is there not required for murder that not just you your actions be planned and deliberate but that your actions be planned and deliberate with respect to killing the specific person that you killed i don't think so i would have to go back and look because again you and i don't do this but i seem to recall um that if you set out to kill one person and you kill somebody else during the course of it, that that's still planned and deliberate. Okay. So for example, think of this, uh, 
this Murdoch murders that are taking place in uh, North Carolina. Um, you know, one of the arguments that could be advanced in that case, of course, it's uh, uh, the wife and and son are murdered and the father, a prominent lawyer, is on trial right now. And, you know, what happens, think of the murderer show, sees the two people over there and thinks, oh, that's the husband. I've got to kill that guy. You know, he's this, this guy had lots of enemies, right? Yeah. Uh, and his wife is there. I'm going to go there. I'll, I guess I'll kill his wife as well. And gets there and, and kills them both and then realizes, oh, it wasn't him. It was his son. Right. Um, yeah, you're you know, yeah. you're yeah, still, yeah, yeah. That's still first degree murder. Yeah. You know. uh, I, so I, I don't think it has to be the person. I think it just has to be an intention to kill. Yeah. And I guess if you look at other situations of like van attacks, people drive their vans into a crowd, they get charged with first degree murder, even though they don't know who's going to be in the crowd and they're just there to kill. Exactly. Um, so then, yeah, I, I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see how this case plays out. And I, I assume at some point the public's going to be notified about what evidence actually exists to justify a first degree murder charge. And yeah, because it would seem premature that they would have a warrant to look at his computer or a warrant to have a journal looked at unless it was in his pocket or something like that. And and unless there's a note or somebody, you knows who works there and, you know, you could connect it that way. I, you know, I would I just seemed surprising that that was the charge that came out right away. I would have thought a a manslaughter charge would have allowed them to even a murder charge, like a manslaughter charge or a criminal negligence charge would have allowed them to arrest him, detain him, get those warrants and and do all of that investigation. Right. Sure. I mean, they they would have had grounds for the warrants even just without detaining or arresting. Although, obviously, you probably want to put him on some conditions. Yeah, I, I think he's, you know, this is a very clear tertiary ground detention. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, just interesting because we also very rarely in Canada see murder charges stemming from vehicular accidents. Um, and people are often calling, you know, there should be such a thing. There should be yeah, vehicular sure. homicide in Canada, yeah. and it's completely yeah. unnecessary. Um yeah, you know. the, law, the law has that spectrum that I just talked about for the purposes of sorting out those cases where there's intentional conduct, where there's unintentional conduct that's negligent, criminally negligent, and where there's just a marked departure from the standard of a reasonably prudent driver. So I, I, I don't generally think got it all covered. Like it's, it's yeah. a pretty reasonable setup that we've got to deal with this circumstance sure. in uh, in Canada. Lawmakers thought it through. All right. Moving on uh, to another big case. This is a saga that you and I have been following for quite some time, um, dealing with traffic court in British Columbia, and more specifically, whether non-lawyers can engage in the practice of law in traffic court. So this is the case of Matic. That's another update in the Jeremy Maddock, we've talked about him before. Usually when we talk about him on the podcast, uh, he gets mad and starts social media messaging us and telling us we're wrong. Um, but so such far... An un- such an unusual case because there's nobody else attempting to do this in BC. Well, and each time he gets shut down in some way or another, um, and he's he's very defensive about it. 
Actually, the Law Society has issued several no action letters to people who are, you know, paralegals and non-lawyers allowing them to take on traffic court matters. Um, and I'm going to come back to that because I wanted to talk about one that was very recently issued um, that last week that has some conditions that I think are very interesting. So it's all part of the same discussion. But yeah, he is he has certainly been leading the charge for people who aren't lawyers, even though they could easily become lawyers to who um, well, in his case, he's yeah. completed law school. He just doesn't want to take the last step for whatever reason, known only to him, apparently. Yes. Well, the same, I guess, maybe the same reasons he didn't want to be vaccinated. I don't know. Um, just throwing that up there. Yeah. <laughs> Do with that information what you will. So Mr. Maddock had um, been put on an injunction by the Law Society to not engage in the practice of law. He was then ultimately issued a no action letter, but not permitted um, to do any traffic court matters because the injunction was still in place. He challenged the injunction to uh, BC Supreme Court unsuccessfully appealed that and tried to argue it at um, the Court of Appeal. First time, interestingly, that he bothered to get a lawyer. Yes. Almost like he recognizes the value of a lawyer. Well, yeah. I mean, he could have tried to do it himself if he didn't think that lawyers had any value, I suppose. A legal researcher, surprising that he couldn't just research and represent himself. The Court of Appeals, basically traffic court, but with three judges. Well, he's allowed to represent himself there. Yeah. No, that's not. So he can represent himself. He just can't represent anybody else, which is why it's why it's somewhat um, ironic, humorous that uh, in this circumstance where he says all along that he can represent people as well as any lawyer and shouldn't need to be a lawyer. Yes, uh, but in the case where actually he can lawfully represent somebody in court, i.e., himself, he chose chose not to. Yeah, and I get like appellate practice is intimidating, but I mean he knows his case. He makes it on Twitter all the time. So well, he does. I mean, appellate practice is in- intimidating, but it shouldn't be. Um, you know, cross examining witnesses and trying to get the evidence out is frankly far more difficult than standing in front of some judges who either agree with you and and nod a little bit or in most cases don't agree with you and pepper you with questions and you know the case and you just do your best to answer it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sorry, Peter Sankoff, if you're listening. Um, uh, well, it's just it's a different practice. Like I'm not an appellate lawyer and every time I'm, you know, rare occasions that I do um, judicial reviews, I, you know, or I have to go into BC Supreme Court for something. I was thinking there was an injunction uh, a few years ago that I opposed for a client, um, a media outlet who had reported a story and were being sued, and that never went anywhere. But you know, it's just frankly, it's it not nearly as difficult as going in and cross-examining a, a half dozen witnesses over two days. Yeah, and having to keep everything straight and respond to changing changing stuff. Usually, your appellate stuff is based on arguments that are filed and already been made. Yep. Okay. Anyway, so um, essentially, Mr. Maddock made the same uh, arguments that he's made all along the way at the. Uh, court of appeal, which is that the court's completely wrong. This is not uh, the same as the interpretations given to similar provisions in other jurisdictions to the Legal Professions Act that allowed non-lawyers to do traffic court matters in other jurisdictions. Court of Appeal um, dismisses this, referring to Section 15 sub 2 of the Legal Professions Act, if anybody wants to read it, um, which is essentially 
that the way it's worded in BC is different than the way that it's worded in other law society um, legislation. And each interpretation in every case is based on the intention of the legislature and the words chosen by the legislature in those cases. So the fact that other pieces of legislation that have the same effect have been interpreted differently is only a byproduct of the fact that it's different jurisdictions. Um, And the second thing that he argued um, is that being supervised uh, by a lawyer would allow him to work in one of his cases representing a lawyer who was a disputant in traffic court um, because he's still supervised by the lawyer in the sense of taking instructions from the lawyer. Yeah, I think he argued that he was working for the lawyer, basically. He's like an employment situation for the lawyer, which was a a novel way to try and do it. Me sending Natalie or Malika, my articled students, into traffic court to defend my traffic ticket for me. Like, hmm. Well, I did that as a student, but of course, I was a student. I wasn't. <laughs> that was, you know, I was an article student. Yeah, you were, you and as was I. Um, I guess it would be like be like me sending Lana, my assistant. She's yeah, studying exactly. law in her program at, at university, so probably um, doing a good job. She's very smart. I would be terrified of Lana, and if I were a police officer. Um, yeah. But the court says, no, 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 no. Employment, the requirement is supervision, meaning that not that the client is supervising you in the sense of giving you instructions because you also instruct your client, but that you're being supervised in that if you're doing something, it's because the lawyer is telling you to do it. Um, And employed, it does have a more flexible interpretation. Um, the law society had taken in its factum the position that employed only meant like a classic employment relationship over a long period of time. They resiled from that position in the hearing and the court doesn't make an express finding on it. They say the employment requirements more, more flexible, but the law society did accept that in some cases, um, the formal or legal nature of the relationship between the lawyer and the, and the employee might, um, might be um, sufficient to allow them to do that. But even so, he was not employed. He was essentially somebody who was hired by, um, in the same way that if somebody fixes your roof, you're not employing them, you're just hiring them to fix your roof. So. Well, it was also pretty obvious that this was just an attempted workaround after somebody has tried everything else, right? Yeah. At some point, you just got to call bullshit and say, look, like we can see what you're doing. Yeah, this is this is still not what's contemplated or anticipated, um, you know, by the the supervision component that's that is identified here. Um, You know, this is just an attempt to to game the system because you've been, you know, there's all of these numerous court cases laying it out. The the history is right there before us. Yes. And the second argument that that Mr. Maddock advances here is his access to justice argument um, that he has been sort of putting forward saying this is very important because it's an access to justice issue and people need to be able to uh, have um, the opportunity to uh, to have representation in traffic court. This is a significant challenge, and the Legal Professions Act needs to be interpreted in a way that's consistent with advancing those objectives instead of undermining them. And the court rejects that. The court says that the 
purposes of the Legal Professions Act and the notion of access to justice don't work in isolation. Yes, access to justice, super important, but it's tempered by the express provisions of the Legal Professions Act, which provisions are aimed at the more important goal of protecting the public. And the court endorses the uh, comments of, of the judge in the Supreme Court case, which essentially said, you're not protecting the public when you're sending in somebody who has no insurance, who has no competency requirements, who has no continuing professional development, who can't, um, uh, who doesn't have a code of conduct that they have to adhere to, um, and who doesn't attract privilege. Yep. So I thought that privilege comment was very interesting because one of the things that you and I have talked about about the potential dangers of this approach of having non-lawyers engage in traffic court practice, besides all of the other ones that the Court of Appeal identified, is the absence of privilege. Because in theory, you could be a compellable witness against your, quote, client. Unless you're a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're a lawyer or an article student. No, I know. And that's that's been my thing that I was hammering on when those ticket guys tried to come to B.C., uh, 15 years ago or whatever that was when I was on the news stations, you might remember that um, talking about it because they were itching to get back here. Anytime there's a discussion about access to justice, uh, the discussion always comes to tickets, which brings me back to the other thing. I mean, we know what he was charging people because we heard about it Um, and he's not a lawyer and he's charging the same fees we are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when it comes down to the access to justice issue, of course he advanced no evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, that there was a problem with that. But, you know, the, the Law Society has been no help there because senior members of the Law Society have made public statements talking about, you know, this is where we're thinking about creating, a, you know, a, a loosening the rules. Um, and the reality is, you know, I know who defends tickets, right? There's our office and everybody in our office. There's Kevin Filco's office, Dan Griffith, um, and probably a handful of other people who do it from time to time. I know what we charge. I think we probably charge less than the rest of them, but we don't charge any more than, than Maddox charges. Nope. And we've got lawyers who are all trained as lawyers, but we're also trained by former police officers in radar, laser, speed estimation. Um, there's no access to justice issue, and he couldn't advance any evidence that would support that. Yep. So last night I was on LinkedIn and I saw a post on LinkedIn by a paralegal who has been issued a a no action letter from the Law Society allowing her to represent people in a number of like a number of sort of forums, one of which is traffic court. But one of the things that uh, she is required to do, and this has appeared on a couple of the no action letters that have been granted to the law society, uh, or granted by the law law society to individuals wanting to represent people in traffic court, is this term. And it goes like this. You must include the following disclosure on any website, social media, or other mediums you use to promote the services. And you provide this disclosure in written form to each client prior to commencing any engagement. 
My services to you are not underlined provided by a lawyer regulated by the Law Society of British Columbia. As a result, I could be required to disclose to third parties your communications with me and any documents you provide in relation to my advice and assistance as such communications will not be subject to solicitor client privilege. They also talk about um, that there's no complaint process, there's no professional liability insurance. I haven't been evaluated for competence, character, or fitness to provide the services. But I think that's so important the, the inclusion of that term. I don't think the Law Society listens to me much, but um, back when that ticket guy came out and I was hammering on that point, I phoned them to tell them that this is what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is what I was going to, the points I was going to make. And they said, well, you know, you're, you're, you're a member and you're allowed entitled to do that. And, and we certainly wouldn't disagree with the points that you're making. We're not going to tell you what to do. If the guy comes out and does something we're gonna we're gonna do it you know if he comes out to try and set up again he'll be in violation of this injunction that's 30 years old um and we will act on it but you know those are about those are valid points so it looks like they've like integrated that in there yeah well I, I wrote them a letter at the time that they introduced this and i said look like these are the things you're going to need to keep in mind because otherwise there's going to be a big problem that's well somebody's going to get hurt right they, yep. You know, they're going to tell something to their, to their, um, their paralegal, whatever they are, ticket person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that statement's going to come out and then they, you know, the crown's going to be looking at it saying, look, this person made an admission that's significant and, and we want to use them as a witness in this case or another one. Yep. And right? I- or it's something else. There have been cases wherein I, as a lawyer, have even been issued subpoenas, more than once, surprisingly, issued subpoenas to try and get me to testify against my clients. And obviously, I've successfully challenged those every time. But even Crown Counsel, who knows that I have privilege as between what happens with me and my client, have still they have still tried to do this. So this strange setup for a McGracken moment. And I find it very interesting... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I find it very interesting that Sorry, that was an inside joke. Everybody, nobody is. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Um, find it interesting. I find it very interesting <laughs> that there is um, there is nobody who is out there sort of advocating <clears throat> or advertising services in traffic court pursuant to their no action letters because I don't think that. If I were a member of the public and I read that disclaimer, I would feel very uncomfortable. I don't think anybody would sign up with that disclaimer, but you could put it really, 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 really small in something published. Well, you still have to keep Um, it in your scientific writing. Yeah. And you could put it in, in, in a paragraph at the bottom of tiny footnotes. I mean, it would be violating the, the spirit of what they're trying to convey and you'd end up maybe in trouble, but. I don't know. Like, I, I certainly wouldn't hire somebody in those circumstances. Okay. But then again, you know, there's the uh, you might find some um, uh, free man of the land or some of those uh, uh, pseudo legal argument people might be, you know, think this is just the person I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, all it does is facilitate those people. Yep. So anyway, as uh, as you kind of already made a, a joke to try and transition into it, I guess it's probably time now for the McGracken moment.
ladies and gentlemen. Let loose the law and justice. Kraken! Eric McGregor! Welcome to the McGracken Moment. This week we're going to talk about cases that should have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada, but didn't. Sorry, Kyla. Folks, I want to talk about TLABC versus British Columbia. This is a constitutional challenge to the CRT, the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Bit of background. Um, the BC government created the Civil Resolution Tribunal and basically forced all ICBC disputes to go to this tribunal. An argument was made that this is unconstitutional. The gist of it is cases were taken from BC Supreme Court where you get to have it heard by a federally appointed judge, and now you have to have it heard by a BC appointed tribunal member. The argument was this was against the division of powers in the Constitution. In the lawsuit against this, Chief Justice Hinkson of British Columbia agreed it's unconstitutional. The law was struck down. The Court of Appeal split on it, upheld the law. 2-1 decision. TLABC looked to appeal that to the Supreme Court of Canada. But about a month ago, leave was denied. Basically, the Supreme Court of Canada refused to hear the case. What does that mean? It means the Civil Resolution Tribunal is constitutional and ongoing ICBC disputes for a variety of cases. Some cases predate this, but some, you know, the majority of active cases now have to go to the CRT. That's what we're stuck with. So we have a little more clarity in terms of how some of these ICBC cases are handled right now. Now, there's a lot of lack of clarity still uh, around a lot of ICBC cases, and I think I'll get into that in next week's moment. But as of right now, what you need to know is the CRT has been found constitutional by the act of the Supreme Court of Canada refusing to hear the appeal. And to me, it was just odd they wouldn't take the case on simply because four judges in British Columbia are on a 50-50 split, whether it's constitutional. Justice Hinkson said it's unconstitutional. At the Court of Appeal, you had a 2-1 split. So judges are right down the middle as to whether this is constitutional. It's a matter of national importance, and I would think the Supreme Court of Canada would have wanted the opportunity, but they didn't take it. So folks, uh, if you have a case that was forced into the CRT, it looks like that's the way these are going to go right now. So a lot of stuff is unfolding right now in BC ICBC claims. Thank you. Well, Eric, I'm probably not going to sue you for violating my trademark. Actually, I don't have a trademark on cases that should have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada but didn't, so maybe I should get one. <laughs> uh, I think you I think you own it by use. Yeah, I think my it's definitely my intellectual property, so. It is. Um, and you've been doing it for years now. It's amazing yeah. to me that you've done it so many times, so many of those videos. And they're good. I noticed uh, some people commenting on the internet this week that it's a useful thing for them to hear it. And the thing that I find interesting, you know, I've, I've, I've been your videographer many times doing it 
is how much I learned about the state of the law. Um, just listening to you explain it. Uh, you're, uh, you're, you've got a great show there. I know at some point there was somebody, some organization wanted to turn it into a TV show and, and then the pandemic started, huh? Yeah. Um, there were a couple people that approached me wanting to turn it into a TV show. I still have like a brilliant idea for a pitch to Netflix for it as a CanCon show for Netflix that would have a very low production cost. So if anybody out there that listens to this podcast has some connections to make a pitch to Netflix, call me. <laughs> uh, yes. Anyway, um, it's time now, Paul, for our The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, cross-examination the pinpoint method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. It's a good one. Local, local, local driver. Little little local flair this week. A great story uh, that I had a little chuckle at from Amir Ali in the Daily Hive. Um, the headline says, "Sir, you can't park there." Apparently, can't park there. You can't park there. There's <laughs> a great photo on uh, Sandra Glendening's um, Twitter account as well at Behind Blue Line of this car uh, that is parked on the train tracks in down in East Vancouver. Not exactly clear how they ended up on those train tracks in the rail yard, like right in front of a parked train, but they did. Um, the explanation that this individual gave to the police was that they were trying to get to, you know, the, the amazing Brentwood got lost and uh, ended up stuck on the train tracks. Yeah. Um, apparently. Alcohol was a factor, commented <laughs> one uh, Vancouver police officer. I'm yeah. looking at it now, and it looks like a Honda Civic. Um, and uh, yeah, it is a Honda Civic for sure. And uh, which brings us back to your TikTok about who uh, who is investigated and charged with impaired driving. Dodge Rams, number one. Honda Civics and Audis up there in the top. And then I think BMW 3 Series or something like that. Yep. And then yep. down the line is Chevy's. And then further down the line is Ford's, despite the fact that the F-150 is still the best-selling car, best-selling vehicle in North America. They're yep. uh, a long way down the road. But I noticed uh, after I, you put on that TikTok, like 1.4 million views on it now, Um there's uh, quite, a, I can think of a number of cases I've had with civics over the years, but again, more Dodge Rams. Yeah. I, uh, I think after I put on that TikTok, I, uh, I opened the next file I opened to read was a Dodge Ram and I had a little chuckle to myself. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Interesting. And again, I, I still wonder what the feature or the factor is there. If it's police are attracted to pulling over Dodge Rams. Because I, one thing that people don't really know is that um, a lot of times, especially with our IRP scheme in BC, uh, the people are pulled over and they don't have a single symptom mm -hmm. um, next to nothing. And, you know, they'll end up charged with refusal in some cases. Sometimes it's a fail. Um, sometimes it's a fail that's unreliable. 
but you wonder why they got pulled over because their driving was perfect. You know, they're pulled over for something for sometimes just for sobriety check, driving away from a liquor store or something like that. And they'll have no symptoms at all. And, you know, but for the fact that they were pulled over, they weren't going to get in an accident with no symptoms and no, you know, <laughs> and, and and the police officer dealing with them for 45 minutes, not detecting anything that would indicate that their ability to operate a motor vehicle was in any way compromised. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, enough of those people are pulled over in Dodge Rams with those circumstances. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, you know, back in the day, pre-mandatory demand, or when police officers were on a shorter leash with respect to the stop, um, you know, those people would have driven home. Maybe they're not over 80 because you never know what the partition ratio people are at, but they would have driven home and never had any consequences or problem. And mm -hmm. were they really a risk to the public? You know, we're supposed to be dealing with a risk to the public. Well, but isn't everybody who's over 80 actually uh, impaired and a danger to the public? Well, that's the position the government takes. And of course, the government can also take the position that it doesn't even really matter what your blood alcohol concentration is. It could just be the reading on this machine, although I think that would be quite a stretch with ASDs. But, um, you know, everybody is purportedly impaired in their ability to drive at 100 milligrams. Well, I'd like to see some of these people who have no symptoms at all and have mm -hmm. blown a fail then stuffed into a driving simulator to see if they actually are impaired in their ability to drive. Because I suspect uh, a lot of people who, uh, who are issued IRPs are not at all yeah, uh, in I mean, any way, shape or form. And again, they wouldn't have been issued IRPs years ago. They would have been taken to a detachment. They'd blow into an approved instrument and we would see what we used to see, uh, which is, you know, 10% of the cases maybe in some circumstances where the person would provide a sample into an approved instrument and the reading would be so low that you couldn't justify, explain the fail, except for potentially mouth alcohol or some yeah. other problem. And by that time, a lot of people, too, would have eliminated just enough alcohol to be under the limit when they blew, so they'd be let go. Sure, but we also used to see ones where the person would blow 30 milligrams or 10 milligrams or something like that. And so you're looking at it and you're saying to yourself, well, okay, if in Squamish, I remember that was the last place I looked at where, like, the last log I got of the last... BAC data master in Squamish had like 30% of the people were detained, taken back to the detachment and then blew well under 80. Yeah. And I mean, that goes back now to 2010 or something like that. Whenever the, the, uh, just before the intox ECIR was introduced, but like that was a significant amount and there's no way that, you know, there's no way they all eliminated, <laughs> you know, a lot of people are rising. Right. Yep. Um, and so they were just inaccurate results and, Right now, you get pulled over, and there's they've got no way of sussing that out. And it could be it could be just the breath blood ratio for those people. Yes, but they're pulled over in their Dodge Ram and subject to that scrutiny, or they drive onto the tracks in a Honda Civic, or you drive onto the railroad <laughs> tracks. Yes, wrong <laughs> side of the tracks. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, that's our podcast. Thank you to Eric McGracken for your McGracken moment this week. Thank you to Brazen Bull, who always puts together this podcast. I never thank you, but I appreciate it. Um, and if you need to reach us about a driving law-related issue, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. Driving Law.